in the mid-16th century if you were in Geneva on the Lord's Day. As the historians tell us, as you sat down to hear the exposition of God's word, John Calvin would be reading from the Gospels and preaching from it. It was his practice every Lord's Day morning to open the Lord's Day by reading and preaching from any four of the Gospel accounts. Handed down to us throughout the centuries is something of the rationale behind that. Calvin was persuaded that in his generation, folks needed to be confronted, first of all, with the person of Christ. What he meant by that was that they needed to see that Christ was not simply a a set of theological doctrines or an equation, as it were, to be made out of dogma. That was not Christ. They needed to be confronted with the person of Christ. My friend, what was true in Calvin's day is no less true in ours. We need to be taken to him. He who alone is the living Christ. The personal Christ who comes to us from the pages of the Gospels. Who is exhibited to us in the entirety of God's word. And friend, our text this morning gives us a portrait of Christ that I think we could easily overlook. But it's such a portrait that takes us well within the veil. A portrait of Christ that is so very intimate. A portrait of Christ that takes us well beyond his external works and and really brings us into contact with his heart. We're confronted in our text this morning with the living Christ. The heart of the living Christ. And it's important for me as your pastor this morning to say that There are one of two ways you and I can hear this text. This afternoon as we sit under it, we can hear it simply, well, simply as a set of ideas. Maybe a historical discourse talking to us about about what Christ did in the past. Or we can hear it as an exhibition of the Christ who is alive today. We can hear this text describing to us, yes, what Christ did in the first century. We also ought to hear it as a true account of the Christ who lives, whose heart is beating today in the 21st as well. And it's my earnest prayer that we would hear that text this way this this afternoon. Our text is something of an interlude. You remember that as we left the 30th verse, we left the woman at the well. She now recedes very much into the background. And and now we are confronted really with a very private and brief conversation between Christ and his disciples. In one sense, as you look at this text, you may say that this is a rather mundane, almost surprisingly, surprisingly insignificant account that would be preserved throughout all the ages. Why is this conversation left to us? Well, friend, as we said before, all of this fourth chapter of John's Gospel is supposed to present to us an exhibition of Christ. And certainly, perhaps it may seem insignificant what we have before us in these verses, but it's only seemingly so. We see Christ here. 
And how so? In verse 34, you have something of a summary of this discourse in which Christ tells his disciples, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. And in the context, you recognize what Christ is saying. He's telling his disciples who are craving him to eat. He's saying that his principal desire, his principal delight, is to be about his father's work. And what you and I are supposed to see here is that this is not to be disjointed from the verses that were preceding. Christ is actually explaining to them, answering for them, if you like, the questions that they were unwilling to ask in verse 27. He's explaining to them why he was sitting there at the well and discoursing with this disreputable woman. He's telling them why he was, though wearied and famished, yet willing to engage this woman. The reason being it was his father's work to do so. And as the God-man, he was delighted in in that labor. This was more to him than sustenance. This was more nourishing to him than food. Seeking and saving this lost and scandalous woman was his father's work and was to him greater than meat. But that's not all this text bears out for us. In in verse 35, you notice what the Lord does. Here, Christ is not content simply to tell us about himself, but he also makes this an exhortation. He drives his disciples to see the same. He says, lift up your eyes, it's an exhortation. And he's, of course, thinking here about the Samaritans who then, we're told in verse 30, are gathering around him. He says, lift up your eyes and see the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Now, friend, again, this is not disjointed. You recognize what the Savior is doing. He's saying, my delight is to seek and save that which is lost, which is my Father's will. And here, friend, he turns to his disciples and he says, here are fields that are white, ripe for harvest. Is this not your delight as well? He's urging them, friend, Not only to see his own heart in the work, but he's urging them to have the same. We see that in this text in various ways. But I want us to see, friend, principally that our theme this morning taken from this text is that Christ and his disciples delight in the gospel's advancement. Christ and his disciples delight in the gospel's advancement. And in these few verses... These themes are carried out to us in various ways. First of all, I want us to consider the desire itself. Then I want us to consider the degree of that desire. And finally, I want us to see its duplication. All three being in our text this morning. So take first of all the desire itself. And you find that again given to us in verse 34. My meat, says Christ, is to do the will of him that sent me. Now, At first brush, you and I know precisely what the Savior is saying. He's saying, it is my choice, it is my will, to do the Father's will. It is my delight, it is my desire, to do the will of him that sent me. Now friend, as you look at this text, what you recognize here, there are two things that are really being told to us. And this is so very important. On the one level, you and I are supposed to recognize that this may be taken abstractly, and truly so. 
Anything that his father has willed, so does the son delight in it. Any command given by God is delightful to him because it comes to him from his father. But more concretely, you and I are also supposed to see in this that he delights also in the object or in the work itself, in, the will, in that which is willed. He delights in the work of redemption because it's his father's will. And he delights in the work of redemption because of the work itself. Friend, both are given to us clearly in the scriptures. And both certainly are given to us in this text. We see here that Christ desires the redemption of his people. And what I want you to notice, friend, first of all, as we think of Christ delighting in this as it is the divine will, you need to recognize, friend, that here you have a picture of a Christ who is altogether holy in his disposition. His heart is altogether bent in following the will of his Father. And you see this in so many ways throughout the Gospels. In 5.30 he says, I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. In other words, in that text he's giving us his present modus operandi. He's telling us very clearly that this is his course of action. Whenever the Father has willed him to do, he is delighted to obey. His is a ready heart of obedience. And we see, friend, not only is that presently his case, but in, in 6.38, he tells us, it was always, it was always his disposition. I came down, he says, from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And then as we sang in Psalm 40, you have, of course, that wonderful picture where Christ says, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. What do we make of all of these texts? Friend, what you and I are supposed to see in this text is the second Adam. Always standing. Always delighting after the will of his Father. Never inclined to sin. Always ready in obedience. Always delighting in the commandments he receives as Redeemer. And so, friend, you have in perfection, without any dilution, without any, any fault whatsoever, you have a Christ who can say perfectly, my soul breaketh, for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. You and I, we need, to, we need to meditate, friend, much on this aspect of the heart of Christ. Here is the second Adam, always obedient. Always delighting in the law of God. Never tainted by sin. Eager to do the divine will. That ought to lead us to worship, friend, especially when you consider how quickly Adam the first fell. And also when you consider how even the most godly of men complain so much about the sin that resides within, that, that, that unwillingness in many ways to go about the work that God has set to their hands such that they cry, who shall deliver me from this body of death? 
Friend, it should make us marvel to see such a Christ. The apostles certainly did. In the discourses of Peter and Stephen in the book of Acts, chapters 3 and 7, you find both of them referring to Christ simply as the Holy One and the Just. Treating that as though those were his names. The Holy One and the Just. Paul, the Just One, Acts 22. Peter, again in prayer, thy holy child Jesus. Friend, when the apostles reflect upon Christ, they don't miss the significance of His holiness. They don't miss the significance of His readiness and His delight and obedience to the Father. We often overlook that. We ought not. And in this text before us this morning, we're readily reminded that ours was a Christ within whom there was no taint of insincerity or sin. All was holiness to God. So he delighted in the divine will. But I also want you to notice, friend, that in this text, you're to recognize that there was a concurrence. There was a, there was a mutual willing of this work between father and son. In other words, friend, you're to recognize in this text, and we'll see this in just a few few other passages as well, that not only was it the Father's will to go and engage in the work of redemption, but the Son's will was concurrent with His. The Son delighted in the work of redemption. And just to cite very two, two familiar texts to us, remember Psalm 2, where the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Note here, friend, that, that it's the, desire, the delight and desire of the Son to ask of the heathen. To make the heathen his. And how would he do that? He would do that through redemption. The Son delights in calling the heathen to Himself. And friend, even, even in the 17th of John, you find this as well. Father, I will that they also whom Thou hast given Me be with Me where I am. Friend, the, the will of God the Father and God the Son were concurrent in the work of redemption. And even, friend, as we we reflect on what we read in Proverbs 8. Remember how there the incarnate Logos says that his delights were with the sons of men. Such is the divine son presented to us in our text. Christ desires indeed the redemption of his people. Now in a context, what does this mean? Well, friend, again, as we said before, Christ is in many ways explaining to his disciples why he was willing to be detained at the well and discoursing with that woman who at time, time and time again, just met him with rebuke and rebuff. It was his delight to do the Father's will. His delight to seek and to save that which was lost. Here you have an exhibition if you will, an incarnate picture of the bosom of the Father, as the evangelist tells us in John 1.18. Do you want to see the heart of God towards sinners? 
Friend, here you're supposed to see that exhibited to us as the Son incarnate sits at the well and discourses with this wonderfully scandalous woman. You want to see the heart of the Father, says John. He says, there you see Him in Christ. Delighting and desiring in the work of redemption. And friend, all of this ought to lead us to marvel, should it not? Because here you see at once the holiness of Christ. No no spot of rebellion found in Him. And yet delighting in the saving of sinners. It should lead us to wonder, friend, at one who is so pure, the Holy One and the just, that He would delight in in the saving of those who are at enmity with God, who are more vile than the most plagued leper, more odious, friend, than anyone ever diseased. You see, friend, both in our text this morning. His desire was the redemption of his people, as it was the will of his Father and his own delight. But what of the degree? What of the degree? I want you to go back for a moment just to verse 31, where there we read that his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat that ye know not of. Now, why this very forceful command from the disciples? Simply, master, eat. Well, there are two reasons for that. The text is quite clear. In the beginning of chapter 4, we read that the Pharisees, it was because the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, that he must flee and go through Samaria. As I said to you before, when we first opened this fourth chapter, that that the idea in, that, in those beginning verses is that Christ was forced to leave Judea in haste. So much so that as they make their way through Samaria, his disciples must go out and get provisions. They didn't even have opportunity to get provisions in Judah. They left in haste because of the persecution. But I also want you to notice too that the text is also very clear about Christ, the condition of his frame. Jesus, we're told in verse 6, therefore being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. Now, in the original, it's very clear. The reason why Jesus sat on the well was because he was fainted. The sense is, friend, very graphically, is that he collapsed onto the well. Why is that so important? The idea, friend, here is that the picture of Jesus that we have in this fourth chapter is the God-man fatigued, hunted and harried, weakened, famished, and yet willing to engage this woman for the sake of her own soul, wearied in the way, a man of sorrows, and yet seeking that which is lost. But I want you to notice, friend, that what you have here is a wonderful and a special picture of the God-man. Here you have a picture 
of the human will of Christ wonderfully displayed for us. You see, the divine will is not susceptible at all. The the divine nature is not at all susceptible to change, and so not at all susceptible to fatigue and weariness. But what we see in this text is that the man Christ Jesus, the incarnate divine son, the wearied, weakened from his flight, even as a man he preferred the will of his father, the redemption of souls, even over slaking his thirst, even over nourishing his body. Beloved, this is so very important, and it's, it's a shame that we've lost so much orthodox Christology. You see, you have here a wonderful picture that Christ is saying, as the God-man, I desire other fare more than food. He's saying that the divine will, the salvation of sinners, is something that nourishes himself more than meat. And as he says to his disciples looking at the harvest, he says, I crave another harvest. Christ is zealous then in redeeming sinners. And just for a moment, it's important for me to remind you what Orthodox Christology does carry out to us. We believe, as the scriptures teach, in one divine person possessed of two distinct natures, divine and human. And what that means, friend, here is that there are also two wills in Christ. There is the divine will and there is the human will. Go to the Garden of Gethsemane and see Christ very clearly and explicitly saying as much. But the point, friend, is you're supposed to recognize is that those two wills were distinct but utterly harmonious. Absolutely in agreement. But what you and I see in this text, especially, friend, And wonderfully, is that while we can say of the divine will that it was inclined and disposed to the redemption of his people, and indeed that's the rise and the principle of the human desire of our incarnate Redeemer, what you and I see in this text, friend, is that the human will of Christ being capable of genuine human affection and sympathy is more moved to the redemption of sinners, the obedience of the will of his Father, than food. This is why Orthodox Christology ought to be taught more than it is. Because, friend, here you have a picture of the heart of Christ that should make the people of God sing. Here Christ can say, not only as the divine Son but he can say literally, as, as one who is, who is truly sympathetic and effective, he can say, how am I straightened until it be accomplished, the work of redemption? This divine Son incarnate can stand and can cry, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He can weep over Jerusalem. And so many times in the Gospels we can say that Jesus had compassion on them. Friend, the divine will is capable of grace. But literally and absolutely speaking, friend, because there are no affections, parts, or passions in the deity, it's not capable of passion or compassion. 
But friend, as the God-man walks on earth, the gospel writers can say literally, Jesus had compassion on them. There is more nectar in this flower. There's more water in this well, and there's more gold in this mine than you and I could know. But God willing, by the end of this afternoon, we, we will see we will see why this is a boon of comfort to God's people. The degree by which Christ desires this as the incarnate Son is of the highest sort. But we come thirdly and finally to the duplication, the duplication of this desire. And for that again, turn with me to verse 35, where Christ, turning to his disciples, says, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Now you recognize what Christ is doing. He's saying to a very agrarian-minded people, you long in earnest for harvest, and you count down its days and its months until you can reap what you've sown. But surely, surely you desire a greater harvest, and that greater harvest is ripe. It's ready. The fields are white. You see in this moment, friend, he's urging his disciples to see that the work Christ is then engaged in is an altogether desirable work. The redemption of souls is something that he would urge his disciples to delight in themselves. And he even makes this point very clear. He says later on, both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And friend, you're supposed to read that in part as a promise. That those who are truly his disciples, those who are truly sowing and reaping, these ones will rejoice in the harvest. Will rejoice in the salvation of souls. Now very briefly, we do have to ask the question, as it arises in verse 38, who are the ones who are, who are sowing and who are the ones who are reaping? And why does he in the 38th verse describe his disciples as those who reap where they did not bestow labor? I think George Hutchison is quite helpful here. He, he reminds us that, that here Christ has already discoursed to us in his conversation with the woman at the well about the benefits of the new covenant. And in many ways, friend, as you look at the prophets of old and the old covenant, they were those who were sowing. But it belonged to the new covenant ministers of the gospel to reap that greater harvest, namely the engrafting of the Gentiles. The, 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 the moving from, from adolescence to maturity in the church. They were to receive no more the shadow of that which the old covenant had given, but, but its body or its substance is given to us in Colossians 2. And so, friend, what you have here is Christ urging his disciples to see not only the general benefits and desirableness of the work, but you also see here the special benefits and the special loveliness of this work in the new covenant. These ones are not those, as it were, who sow, though the apostle will describe it in a different sense as such in 1 Corinthians. It is, as it were, in the new covenant, we are those who reap. What you see, friend, overall in these verses is that Christ desires and induces his disciples to desire in this work themselves.
We've looked already at the desire that Christ has to, to keep the will of His Father and, and even just the redemption of souls is something that He delights in as the God-man. But now, friend, He turns to His disciples and He urges them to look upon and desire this greater harvest themselves. And He even promises that those who do so and who do reap indeed, they too will rejoice. They will find it desirable. And and why should they not find it desirable? Friend, this is a work that certainly sets before us in wonderful pictures the glory of our God. All of this redemption of souls is to the praise of the glory of His grace, says the writer in the epistle to the Ephesians again and again and again. Friend, is He not worthy? Is our triune God not worthy to get glory on the earth? And and that through the redemption of souls in which you see wonderfully the omnipotence and the grace of God sweetly met. Is he not worthy that men should extol him who has taken that which man has ruined and makes it new? Friend, is this not work altogether desirable, the advancement of the gospel? That God's name would be exalted therein. And is it not desirable, friend, because here you see evil conquered? The first man, Adam, was made a living soul, says the Apostle Paul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. The first Adam was made in innocence. The first Adam was made without sin. Made upright, as the preacher tells us in Ecclesiastes. He was made a living soul. But friend, this last Adam, says the Apostle, is not only filled with life himself, but he imparts it to those who are dead. And is that not altogether desirable? To see the ravages of sin turned on its head, as it were. To find indeed, friend, that sinners could say, indeed, that the graves at death have been conquered. Is the work not desirable? And friend, for those who have come to Christ, that work is indeed desired. God, by His grace, leads His people indeed to see this work as altogether worthy of their affection. You remember in 2 Corinthians 5, we have a vivid picture of that. As though, says the Apostle, God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God. Friend, it's a wonderfully emotive text. It shows us the Apostle Paul, speaking as God's ambassador, urging sinners to comply with the gospel. It's the clarion cry of their hearts, simply that we would know Him and make Him known. That we would see souls take hold of Christ. Friend, that ought to be the desire not only of apostles and ministers of the gospel, but that ought to be the desire of anyone who has seen the loveliness of Christ. And we see that this work of grace that inclines men and women to to desire the gospel's advancement is powerful. Paul, once Saul, kicked against the pricks. Time and again he reviled the church and the work of the gospel. And then became a preacher and a martyr 
for that which he preached. You and I aren't to marvel at a man there. You and I are to see that Christ indeed makes this work desirable in the lives of his people. As we close, friend, I want us to tarry for a moment here and see Christ more clearly. As I said to you already, Orthodox Christology is a wonderful, a wonderful boon for the saint. But sadly, too often, we, we, we dwell very little upon it. I want you to notice, friend, that it, when the Divine Son took upon himself human nature, You're to recognize that in doing so, he took upon himself a humanity that was altogether and fully furnished to accomplish the work. Allow me to read to you just a few lines from one of our forebears on this point. He says here, when he, when Jesus, was to assume a human nature, he is brought in saying, a body hast thou fitted me. That is, a human nature fitted, as in other things, so in the temper of it, for the Godhead to work and show his perfections in best. And as he took on a human nature on purpose to be a merciful high priest, so such a human nature, and of so special a temper and frame, as might be more merciful than all men or angels. His human nature was made without hands, that is, was not of the ordinary make that other men's hearts are of, though for the matter the same, yet not for the frame of his spirit. What Goodwin is telling us there is that in the incarnation, Christ was given a humanity especially capable of mercy, given a human soul, as he is so possessed of one today, that was more merciful than that of all other men and angels combined. Why is that significant in our text? Friend, what you and I are supposed to see here is that then his desire, his desire to obey his Father was of the highest sort. As well as his desire to save sinners was out of the greatest love. There has been no soul winner on the earth who so desired the salvation of sinners as that of Christ. And not only friend as the divine son, but even with human affection and sympathy, none have desired Christ. None have desired that men would close with Christ more than the man Christ Jesus. This, again, friend, not to be a boon of comfort to us, but I also want you to notice, friend, that this makes him a genuine archetype for believers. As a man, friend, with a human heart, he desired the advancement of the gospel. And so, friend, that has to be the pattern, a genuine pattern for his people. So the question by way of examination, of course, is is that our desire? But, But before we even ask that question, friend, it's important that we get the order right. I think too often we ask that question without recognizing that there are other questions that must go before that. This text wonderfully portrays for us the loveliness of Christ. 
takes us into the veil and shows us the heart of our Redeemer. And so the first question has to be, have I seen something of the loveliness of Jesus? Have I seen something of of the worth of Him? Friend, if the answer to that question is in the affirmative, then then all the other questions are answered for us as well. But friend, if, if we've not seen Christ in this way, then then we will not desire as we ought the advancement of the gospel. We will not desire it for the glory of God or for the advancement of his name. And so, friend, have you seen the loveliness of Christ in the text before us this morning? Do you marvel at one whose heart was altogether, is altogether pure? Do you marvel at one who now, who now has a human heart that beats and desires the salvation of his people and with more mercy than men or angels combined. Second question then is, do you see your dependence upon him? It must be he, he who alone can work this in his people. And so, friend, do you see your utter dependence upon his work of grace? And then, friend, we can get to that question that we started with. Do you desire the advancement of his gospel? Do you desire the, the lifting up of his cause in these lands? Do you long, friend, to see the harvest? As we close, though, I said to you several times now that this text has so many things for the comfort of Christians. I want you to know, friend, in this passage, you and I should take delight in the fact that our triune God has ordained the salvation of sinners, the salvation of his people. That is the, the rise and the foundation of all that we see in our text this, this afternoon. But the apostles were very clear, especially in the epistle to the Hebrews, that there was something else that we are given in the incarnation that should thrill our souls. And that is that our Christ is possessed of a human heart with perfect affection and sympathy for his people. I want you to notice, friend, we don't dwell on that. The word of God urges us to do so and urges us to do so for comfort. The word of God tells us very clearly that our triune God has loved and ordained salvation to his people. And in the same breath it says that there is an incarnate son who yearns with his human heart for you. With a heart of sympathy and mercy. There is a twofold cord then, friend, of the love of God. A twofold consideration that should lift our hearts this morning. But as we close the exhortation from this passage, friend, should be first to the unbeliever. Friend, if Christ is so desirous of the salvation of sinners, how wicked is it to turn away the Christ who calls sinners this morning to himself? If he takes such delight in the work itself, how wicked is it, friend, for those to meet these calls with unbelief? And indeed it is true as 
we're told in Proverbs 8. Those indeed who do not love him must hate. Those who hate him must indeed love death. But for Christians, friend, the exhortation is so straightforward, is it not? This is the divine will. That you would desire and labor according to your callings for the advancement of his name and cause. You need not, friend, worry yourself into perplexity about what is the divine will. Here it's given to you very directly. The specifics, albeit not so, but, but friend, you and I are supposed to see in this text that it is your calling to desire and to labor in this way. And friend, it's your calling even to do so in such a way that you prefer this work even to your own need. That it's this work, as it were, that energizes and nourishes you. May it be that as the Lord God conforms us more into the likeness of his Son, we would find that we comply with that exhortation ourselves. Amen.